Welcome to the Rise to Change podcast. I'm your host, Daniela Scani. And I'm your host, Marcela Torres Noguera. We're mental health professionals with a private practice in New York City. And guess what? We are not only partners in business, but also in life. This podcast explores the everyday struggles of working professionals that we've seen throughout our combined 25 years of uh, experience in our practice, as well as in our personal lives. Our motto is to normalize, not minimize. And on today's episode, we are delighted to have here with us Mr. Michael Basta. Uh, Mr. Basta is a licensed clinical social worker with a successful, successful private practice in Santa Rosa, located in Sonoma County, California. Mr. Basta has over 30 years of experience working with couples, and guess what? He was trained by John Gottman. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, John Gottman or the Gottman Institute or Julie Gottman, we think you should be, because in our opinion, uh, uh, they are the most influential uh, researchers when it comes to relationships and uh, uh, communication and, and couples in general. And uh, uh, communication is the reason why we're here today with Mr. Basta. Uh, we uh, think that communication or the lack of is one of the main reasons why couples uh, struggle and uh, they seek therapy. And uh, Mr. Basta is going to tell us a little bit about good communication, bad communication, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, Mr. Basta, welcome. Delighted to be here. Thank you. First of all, let's start off with uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your background? Okay. I'm not sure how far back you, you want me to go. I, <laughs> I could say uh, currently I'm, I'm a clinical social worker, as you said. I mainly see couples these, these days. Um, I started out uh, as a little kid in San Francisco growing up in an Italian neighborhood, of, uh, living above my uh, father's bar. And I would say I chose the field of social work because I was – inspired either to be a bartender like my dad or my uncle or a, or a, or a priest. And, I, and my, compromise, my compromise was a social worker. <laughs> that's, a, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a good middle ground. <laughs> that's awesome. What, what, made you, um, what made you get involved with the uh, uh, Gottman Institute? Well, uh, I had really uh, worked most of my career working with children and families. And at, at the time that I took training from the Gottmans or initially, um, I, my uh, colleague uh, Marcia Gomez and I were working uh, in a, 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 a Kaiser uh, Hospital psychiatric uh, clinic, and I was running a program for uh for suicidal teenagers, for teenagers in, in uh, high crisis and distress. And our program was a family-based program. So we really believed if we involved the family, we could help the kids the most. And um, we had a multi-phasic program, but we really focused on family therapy a lot. And as a strategic family therapy, part of what I learned is that I wanted to have the right people in the room in that family who I wanted to figure out what, what conversations did we need to have and who needed to be there. So many times what I found is I was having the teenager actually leave the room and I was keeping the parents in the room. And I was very interested then in working with these parents and that drew both Marcia and I to then uh, go to uh, some training with the Gottmans. Uh, we were part of what they called the California rollout. So the Gottmans at that point in the early 2000s uh, took their approach and they did, they did this rollout training to uh, a number of us in California. So it kind of got started there. Wow. You, you, it, when you mentioned the, the, the teenager or teenagers walking out, you brought back a lot of memories. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe more. That, that's for another that's, – that's for a session. I'll save that. Yes. Go ahead. So, um, Mr. Bastam, I mean, one of the things that we really wanted to talk about, which seems sort of like, you know, people kind of like assume that they know what – bad communication is or good communication is, but we want to hear from you if you can tell our audience a little bit about, you know, what, what does good communication look like? And can you give us some ideas so our audience can also learn a bit? That's a, it's a good, it's a good question because I think that at least uh, what I believe is that most people think about communication and they may think about on the one hand, it would be providing a very um, 
clear uh, uh, message. And so if somebody could do a good job, maybe, you know, writing up a nice persuasive script and delivering this in a very eloquent way, we'd say that's great communication. And I would say uh, maybe that might, that might be part of it. But the part that is, is uh, really important is, uh, is then on the listening side, um, am I maintaining my attention? And I'm, am I listening to take in what you're saying and, and really get to the heart of what you're saying? Or am I uh, really only getting part of that, but formulating in my head ways I'm going to come back and counter what you're saying, right? Which is, which is kind of what we're trained to do. Uh, to come up with a, a kind of a critical response, say. Um, so I, I would say for communication to be really good, um, you know, number number one, uh, we got to be present, uh, not distracted, but but present and taking in the information. And uh, and on the on the speaker side, and this gets into uh, right away into uh, one of the findings from uh, from John's research is that. Um, it's not enough. It's not enough then just to have the, the listener be a really good listener. Uh, you know, there is a, there are forms of therapy that really just work on the, on the listening, but how that speaker delivers their message really important. If that speaker delivers that message in a way that is very harsh, right? Harsh and critical or putting their partner down, um, you know, that's predictive of, of that communication being really bad. And then, bad things for that relationship. So, so, you know, we're, you're saying part of it is just being able to be present and that's the first step. And the second one is around being able to take in what the person is saying and then give back something. I think, you know, we, we often encounter in couples like, Hey, like, you know, I'm, I'm sharing this with you, but I may not necessarily want a solution or I'm, I, you know, it's kind of like, I just want you to be able to listen to me and kind of like take that in. But it's hard because I think most of us have that idea that if somebody's sharing something with us, we have to, I don't know, deliver and kind of like give some kind of solution or, or just, you know, in giving our opinion and depending on how we do that, we may, you know just to start some things going that are not making our partner feel like we're really listening. Yes. Yeah. I think that you get on a very important point because yeah, for many of us and some people have generalized to say, this is more of a guy thing, but I talked to plenty of, of women that would say the same kind of thing that, that there's this feeling that if I don't give you some good advice, I'm really not doing my job. And, oh, um, amen. That's yeah. that's wow. That's uh, we're gonna we're gonna put that on a loop so that we tell our audience. That's that's awesome. What you just said. That's awesome. Carry on. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, what I was gonna say is then I think some of this then is the art of figuring out, and maybe you just gotta ask. Uh, you know, so do you want you, you want some advice here, or you want me just to listen, right? Uh, because yes, right. Because these yes. are these are different kind of conversations. Sometimes. Sometimes we people really do want advice. I may not know what to do with a situation and I may just be throwing my hands up. But I think probably more often than not with most of us, what we find, whether we're aware of it or not, is we're wanting to just say some things. And as we're talking, we may be moving towards feeling better about a situation and maybe even coming up with our own solutions. So if we can have have a partner that is there just to hear us out, reflect back what we're saying, or just say some things, or even just go, hmm, oh, yeah, good, oh, no kidding, oh, that's horrible, some things like that, uh, that may just do it right there. Yeah. And I was thinking about what you said about being present, that nowadays it's so hard for us to be present because sometimes, you know, we're like, we get a message on the phone or like, and then that, which seems so simple as sort of like the first step already becomes sort of like an obstacle for a lot of couples that is like, okay, like how, like, I really need to tell you this, but you're busy or like, you know, when can I say this to you? Right. And that's another piece of, I guess, good communication, finding a time when, you know, it's, it's like a good time or checking with our partner. Is it okay? Like I have something that I want to share is it okay if we talk about it right now, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. I, 
I think that it's it's exactly right. And I think that we're all subject in this world to having this great technology. I mean, the technology that lets us have this meeting like this, it's incredible. And at the same time, we're subject to this mass distraction. Um, you know, I think uh, in the morning, I think, oh, I have to stop and think, uh, do I reach over and hug my wife first or do I grab my phone <laughs> because I want to know what the weather is and what happened with the stock market? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You, you can yes. ask Alexa. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, and and going going a little bit more into so you talked a little bit about I mean what good communication is and therefore we started talking about what poor communication is but if you can tell us a little more about poor communication like what does that look like like how do I know uh, I'm not doing a very good job with my partner when they're trying to communicate something to us? Well, uh, so yeah, that dips us right into I think the the the. Uh, I won't know. I won't say it's the biggest finding, but the most uh, popular early finding that came out of John Gottman's research, and that was what he called uh, the and calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So, mm -hmm. so uh, what he found in this in this research is that there are four behaviors that if you if you see coming up in a conversation are predictive, not only of that conversation going bad, but in the long term are predictive of a relationship falling apart if, if that couple is in a pattern of, of having these behaviors come up frequently. And so these four things he called the four horsemen of the apocalypse or like the, the foretellers of doom, you know, for that couple are, uh, are number one, criticism. So what he means by that would be bringing up a problem that uh, focuses on your partner being the embodiment of that problem. You know, for in other words, I am uh, upset because uh, I went out to my truck and uh, there was no gas in it, and I was worried I was going to run out of gas on the way into into, um, into the office. And so I turn to my wife and I say, "Once again, you know, you're so thoughtless." You know, you, you left me with an empty tank. Could you just, you know, remember every once in a while, you know, stop and get some gas. You know, don't leave me like this. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, I could have said that in a, in a softer way. I could have said how, how frustrated I am. I could have said, you know, I really, need, I really need you to help me out with this and, you know, please get gas. But in, instead, if I turn that into a statement of my, my uh, partner's um, character flaws, then he would say that's criticism right there, right? Attacking the character. Yep. Attacking the character of your partner. The other one he said is defensiveness. And this is not a fancy like Freudian kind of theory. He's just saying if you're <laughs> in the conversation and you find yourself either listing all the ways that you're right, like a laundry list of these things, you know, I'm an innocent victim. You know, here, here are the reasons why it's not my fault or, or, or uh, dipping into what we call righteous indignation and turning on your partner you know, and attacking them. You would say, well, that's another form of defensiveness. So he said, if you see that, all right, that's, that's another one of these four horsemen. And then uh, the, the third is actually statistically the most predictive of a relationship uh, falling apart and that communication and that conversation falling apart. And that's what he called contempt. Contempt mm -hmm. is the emotion expressed like this, non-verbally. It looks like this. You know, where I, I curl up the left side of my face and I roll my eyes. I don't know if you guys ever seen that before. No, 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 never, no. never. No, uh, never. absolutely never. <laughs> it's a legend here in New York. It's a legend. New York City, I know you don't have any of that. Hey, we don't have that. <laughs> Very close to Philadelphia, brotherly love, really. <laughs> so the expression of contempt, you know, is, is, a, it, it's, it, it is a put down of your partner. So he say, he would say, you know, if, if, if what you get, if you're, what you're doing essentially is finding a way to rise above your partner and put your partner down. All right. That's, that would be the number one predictor of, uh, of a relationship falling apart and the conversation in effect, not going well in the short term. And then 
The, uh, the fourth one is what he called stonewalling. So stonewalling is what happens when I start getting overwhelmed by this conversation. Uh, my body might start uh, going into uh, an alert mode, right? I might start uh, to be uh, physiologically activated to the point where I want to either attack or I want to leave this room. And what a stonewaller would do is just kind of turn away. I just avert my eyes. I may look down. Um, I may cross my arms across my chest like this. But I disengage from the conversation even though I'm still there. Right? I'm trying to like, I'm trying to contain myself essentially because I feel like uh, my fight flight response is kicked in. Right? So those are the, those are the four we'd say. If those are coming up frequently, um, then that's a problem. We've got to take a look at, at things. Uh, in John's research, he found that sort of in the mid to uh, low 90%, uh, he could predict just by looking at a couple for 15 minutes having a conflict conversation. If those behaviors came, came up, he could predict that, that in five years, that couple would either be miserable staying together for some sort of external reason, or they would have broken up. In our fields, we can't, we, we can't predict many things in the 90 percentile, right? We sure, can't. absolutely. And I think this is the perfect um, segue into the next question, which is um, John Gottman also identified certain principles uh, that can pretty much help uh, a couple uh, nourish and maintain their connection and uh and you know their relationship um i think he, he talked about love maps and fondness and admiration and all of that can you, can you just tell us a little bit about that yeah so in this in this research initially they came up with seven areas and they said and if you read the book the seven principles for making marriage work it it's uh based on that uh, that research that was this original uh, longitudinal study where they would have couples come back um, you know every four years and they would ask they would ask them a series of questions and they would uh, give them a physiological analysis and and uh, do this whole uh, uh, research on them um, and and what they found with those couples is that there's a group of there's a group of couples that they said are master couples, right? These are the couples that, uh, you know, to define in their words what a master couple meant, it would be that this is a couple that's been together for a long time. They said 20 or more years. Uh, this is a couple where when you interview them separately uh, and together, they're pretty much saying the same thing. They're saying, I would rather be with this person than anyone else. This is the person for me, even though we might have, it might not be perfect, this is the person for me. And they also would notice that when one partner entered the room or the conversation, the other partner's heart would relax, not, not accelerate, right? That that person felt, felt um, comforted by their partner, right? And he said, that's a master couple. And, and they found these seven characteristics of those couples, all right? And the first is as, as, uh, Danielle, as you said, would be love maps, having good love maps. And what that means is just having a lot of brain space for your partner. You know, that you could be woken up in the middle of the night and somebody could say, uh, tell me Marcella's favorite color. And you could be like, <laughs> ah, <laughs> it's this, right? <laughs> what's her, what's her, uh, uh, or you could be like on a cruise, uh, do, uh, you know, uh, competing on the newlywed game or something. And then they would say, Oh, tell me about her most embarrassing moment. And you'd be able to say, Oh, I think it's this, right? And then we'd take her out from a, you know, some room where she's been hiding and, and she'd say, Yeah, that's it. You know, he's got it. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's that's having a good love map, right? And it leads to that sense of feeling known, which it ends up being very sure. important. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then he said the second thing is having good fondness and admiration. Right. Well, the other way of saying that would be to have a culture of appreciation in the relationship where we're saying things or doing things that show our partner, hey, I really care about you. All right. I'm not, I'm not being, um, how would John Gottman say this? He said, not being the Swedish farmer that loved his wife so much, he almost told her. 
right? That you want to be that you want to be that kind of person that is uh, in this relationship, expressing those feelings. You know, not just keeping it in my head. Like, of course, you know, I love how you cook. You know, I have to tell you uh, uh, all the time about that. No, it's it's expressing that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it happens so often and we see it a lot that couples just, you know, it's like, well, I mean, she knows I like her cooking, but it's like just saying it and kind of like expressing that appreciation is key because we all need that. Right. And it's like, you know, it's like an acknowledgement. It's um, just being appreciative of what the person is doing. Yeah. for us but many times in the day-to-day that gets a little lost so you know that's that's so important that you're talking about that yeah exactly right I, you know to give a practical example of this i learned I, I learned from my wife we were with some some friends and family and everybody was talking and and giving compliments and things and and afterwards my wife said you know i really wish you would have spoken up and said something in that group about about me uh, because, you know, there's all this complimenting. I know I do some of that too. And, and I know that you like about that, but I would have liked to have heard that. I said, Oh, it, I didn't know that that was important to you. Well, we've only been together 40 something years, but, uh, I didn't know <laughs> yeah. be important to you that I say something out loud in front of the group uh, of the group. Okay. I will. F- I will put that in the love. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so you said love maps, fondness and admiration. Yeah. The other one is, is called uh, turning towards. And uh, what turning towards uh, means is essentially uh, either because there's what we call a bid from our partner. Or your partner may directly or indirectly ask for something. Uh, turning towards that bid trying to acknowledge uh, and take care of that bid for something could be like something like uh, uh, the classic thing would be one partner, you're taking a hike and one partner says, hey, look at that bird. And I might be on my cell phone, you know, texting with uh, some friend of mine and I stop texting and I go, oh yeah, nice bird, right? Might just be that, nice bird. Could be more enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. It could be I drop the mm-hmm. phone in the creek and I go, oh my God, look at that bird. That reminds me, you know, we should probably quit our jobs and go visit the Amazon. There's so many more birds. <laughs> that's, that's me. That's me. Is that right? Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, she keeps me grounded. So that keeps me on earth. But what you're saying, the turning towards is really responding to that attempt. Like, you know, I'm kind of like telling you something. I want your attention. So turning towards means I give you that attention and that's um, yeah. that's turning towards. That's yeah? turning towards. And it could be unbid. It could be, you know, I know you love uh, French toast. So that's in my head. I'm like, oh, okay. I know I'm going to make French toast this morning. Right. And hey, look, there's the French toast. Right. I, I, I'm turning toward you in this in this way. Right. As opposed mm-hmm. to, uh, hey, look at that bird. And I keep texting. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Or, hey, look at that bird. Look, you know, I'm texting here. You know, give me a second. You know, this is important. Right. Turning against, turning away or turning against. So but, yeah, what they found in the research is not. It's not startling. It, you know, they found that uh, kind of what you would predict that couples that turn towards in a um, in a very high degree uh, do very well. Right, the ones that are not, they're not doing well. It's kind of what we would predict uh, would be would be the case. Mm-hmm. But but I would say a couple of more things about that that are I think are uh, trickier. One is that. We think then about uh, these three things I just talked about as the basis for a good friendship, right? That to have a good love map, to have a strong fondness and admiration, to turn towards. That's like the definition of a strong friendship. And that, that seems to be the basis uh, really of a, of, a, of a strong love relationship, to have those components like that. That would be the, you know, the one thing that's important to note. The other is that um, I'd want you to think about each uh, act of turning towards or turning away or turning against 
as like a piece of emotional currency, if you will. And if you think about a couple sharing, like the two of you, you share an emotional bank account. And that bank account doesn't, you know, the, the currency of it is not uh, dollars and cents. The currency are these little units of turning towards or turning away. And then if you, one way to then think about it further, and this is, I can only follow John and his mathematics so far, but this one I, this one I capture is that he would say, if you look at a couple in a conflict conversation in our laboratory, a couple that's a master couple, when they're having that conflict conversation, a master couple has five positive behaviors to every one negative behavior. A master oh, five couple. To one. So they're in conflict. They may be angry. They may be, um, you know, their heart rates may be rising a little bit, um, but they're still doing things on more, far more on the positive side than the negative side. They would be saying things like, "Okay, my bad. Tell me that again. I, you know, or let me try that again. Let me let me see if I can say it a different way." Or they'd be maintaining eye contact with each other, five to one. Mm-hmm. If they were just hanging out, 20 to one positive to negative is what they would find. So if then we take this idea of the emotional bank account and those units, those units of emotional currency, right, that come from the turning towards or the turning away, turning against, we could then uh, theorize that, well, each time that I turn away, it's worth five. It's worth five units of uh, emotional currency. Each time I turn towards, it's worth one. And so the, the, the theory here would be that's the economy of a relationship, right? That I got to keep a lot of positivity because negativity outweighs positivity in this formula. So I better keep a lot of positivity going. If I just put it on, on in neutral, when I say I'm on a coast, you're just going to keep it low energy here. That relationship will eventually deteriorate over time, right? Because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like the emotional currency, especially, I mean, here in New York, that's, uh, resonates. Uh, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, thank you for sharing. That's, yeah. that's awesome. So, so thinking about, I mean, you were talking a little bit more about conflict. Could you tell us a little bit about, um, just some bits of wisdom for the couples in our audience about, including you know, us, including yes, us. <laughs> about, you know, problem solving, conflict resolution, you know, when we get to those places where, you know, we're talking about difficult topics, finances, uh, you know, parenting, raising our children, parenting, yes, chores, 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 who's doing who the dishes, what? Um, you know, what, what do you think, you know, could be helpful in terms of you know, for our audience to kind of like think about, okay, what are some things that we can do when we face uh, a conflict? What what does that look like? Yeah. Well, there's a lot involved in that, right? That's one sure. of the whole er- of those seven areas is how we deal with uh, conflict. And, um, and it, I think one of the things that is important, and I wish I knew this like way earlier in my relationship, I would have thought about it a lot differently. Um, but, but it's that all conflicts are not relate, are not equal, right? All conflicts are not equal. So if you, if you look at the, uh, the problems that couples have, the issues that they have, what, what John found in the research is that roughly 70% of the problems that any couple has are what we call perpetual. They're, these are problems you're never going to fully solve. And, and it doesn't matter if this is a happy couple or a miserable couple, those numbers are about the same, right? You, 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 you know, you knock on the door of your neighbor and have them count up the problems that they have. And it seems like, okay, they're going to have about 70% and they're arguing all the time. And you go to the next neighbor and they seem like they get along well, well, they're same thing. About 70% of the problems they face are ones that they're never going to fully solve. And the reason for that is that you're taking two personalities and putting them together. And mm-hmm. in some ways they line up great. And in some ways they don't. And it's that it's the, the mixture of those things that create these problems where 
if you're asking me to change, well, I'm wired a certain way and I can only bend so far, right? So this mm -hmm. is kind of the state of affairs of a relationship. And you, and you might say then, well, that's kind of a negative view of reality, right? We shouldn't think, we shouldn't think about it that way, except that that seems to be reality. What John would say is, is he say, well, in this you know, one classic study, we had the couple again come back every four years for 20 years, right? So they came back five times. He said, if we took the videotapes of them having a, a conflict or an argument, not an argument, but a discussion of their last argument, and we took those videotapes and we spliced them together, what you would see is it'd be the same conversation except the lines on their face would deepen, their, their hair would get a little more gray, and their clothes would change. But otherwise, he said, it's basically <laughs> the same conversation for most of these couples like that, right? So, but then if you look at the group that are this master group, right? Not the group you could say is a disaster group, or the, you know, people are just miserable and they're breaking up, but this group that are still like, hey, you know, we're really doing well together they still have that 70% uh, of their problems being perpetual, but those couples have found a way to accept each other in a different way. And they have found a way to be in a dialogue, which is not about saying, my life's work here is changing you into something else. Instead, they found a way to keep talking about these issues, realizing that they're very different in these ways, but but always coming up with little compromises that are temporary, right? It's not a, it's not a final fix to the, the problem. So say, for example, you know, and you could name any, you could name any problem. If we said uh, parenting, sex, the in-laws, money, you know, like, like all of the classic problems that couples, you know, might have, um, we could say, well, those could all be perpetual problems how the couple talks to each other ends up being really important. That's, you know, that, that's the key. And, 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 you know, if they're able to, uh, accept that they have this difference for, you know, and I'll give you, maybe give you one, one example, and then I will, um, hand the floor over. Cause I feel like I'm blathering on here a little bit. Sorry about that. No, this is, this is wisdom. Listen, I feel, I feel I'm back in, uh, in, uh, in college here. This is, uh, this is great. Uh, I assure you, please carry on. Yes. Don't feel pressure. Well, the, the classic would be like this. Here's, here's one partner that is very introverted and doesn't really want to spend a lot of time with other people, but they meet somebody that really lights them up. And this person is, is uh, very outgoing and social. And, and the one who's social says, you know, I see all these people, they seem so superficial, but this, this guy, he seems really deep. I really like being, I feel so different being around him. And that's how it starts. But then we get like five years down the line and the, the, the introverted partner is saying, you have everybody in the neighborhood at the house all the time. I need some space. <laughs> I feel this. Like everybody's here all the time. I have nothing. And the other one's saying, look, you know, I, I can't live in isolation, right? I need to be part of the community. And this is how I grew up. And I don't know what's going on with you, right? As so we say, well, that couple could really get stuck like that, right? Mm -hmm. Right? That the very thing that pulled them together, one of the very things now is the thing that becomes this big problem, right? Where they're like this. And so the solution there is not to say, let's get in our heads more and let's, let's use a rational problem solving approach. And let's say, well, okay, how can we come up with the best way of dividing up our time so this works for everybody? The solution is each one of them needs to be uh, seen by their partner for who they are, warts and all, right? They need to be seen as like, this is part of who I am. And if you can have that, then I would say now there's a little platform where we can talk about what, a, okay, Saturday night, you want to have your, have the, your friends over. I can deal with that. Let's talk about a compromise for this week, right? Maybe the compromise is going to last a month and we're going to have to talk about it again because then I'm getting overwhelmed with that. But I feel so isolated. Okay, but can we talk? 
that's how a master couple does it, I would say. And the opposite is that couples will get gridlocked. They'll just get stuck in that, in that kind of a, of a, of a problem like that with that 70% type problem. Yeah. You, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think was, uh, uh, so important when you said to make a, dis- a distinction here between problems and perpetual problems because there are certain things that always come up and and you know there's no it is what it is it they're called life right yeah. <laughs> that, that that's uh, that that's but i i think it's important i thank you for for sharing that we want to be respectful uh, of your time i think we have room for maybe two more questions or or something um yeah um well one of the things that we um that we often hear from people that reach out to our practice. Sometimes individuals may reach out and they may say, you know, I'm having a lot of issues with my partner, but, you know, they're not quite ready to start therapy. Um, You know, what do I do? Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what can a a person do when their partner is not yet ready to kind of like delve into, you know, issues or just things that they're struggling with? Yeah, that's a good one. I think that's a, that's a, a, a classic kind of a situation. I, I think as a couples therapist, I would say it is the the minority of the time that both people come in with equal motivation to, into therapy, you know, on that end of it. Um, and I, I think that uh, I don't have every perfect answer to this, but I'll tell you what comes to mind is the first thing is for the partner that is aware there's something going on here and I really think we need to change things up is again, not to fall prey to criticism and contempt, right? To, to bring up the problem, uh, owning it as something that is troubling to you. You know, that I'm having, I'm finding myself being sad lately. I'm finding myself really worried. I'm finding myself confused. I need for us to have some different conversations. I need for us to try to do some things different here. Can we talk about that? Right. To, I think from the beginning to start like that, one of the things that uh, becomes problematic is that uh, if the problem comes up where one person is uh, saying in effect, I think I have my act together here, but if we just worked on you a little bit, then, you know, maybe <laughs> we could move things forward. Um uh, and, and I'm saying this for your for your own good. Yes, it's also so different, you know, when you're saying it. And and uh, we talk with uh, couples all the time. And one of the things that I I think we kind of like don't think about so much, but it, it sounds, you know, when you said it, it reminded me of that. How talking from the I, right? Like from I, like this is what's going on with me, and then sharing that with our partner instead of saying you always do yeah. this or you never listen, right? And just starting uh, just a conversation from there is so different. Like it sounded so different when you said it uh, from like an eye perspective, right? And yeah. that's so hard for us to do sometimes. Yeah. Like, you know, when I, it's it's just not the way sometimes we're used to talking, no, right? No, <laughs> absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So it does take, it does take slowing it down a little bit and it, it and uh, it also makes it makes uh, a person more vulnerable to say that, right? Because if I say that, I'm revealing more of myself and then you could attack me and, and, and I could, you know, then really feel like, okay, you know, I uh, put myself out there and I, and I got shot down and that could hurt. So it's harder, to, it's harder to do that, right? It's harder to do that. Um, on the other hand, I think you're getting back to you, the, your original question is, um, it, it will not by, by using what we call a soft startup like that, it doesn't guarantee your partner is going to say, okay, this is great. Let's buy all Gottman's books or let's go into therapy. Now you've really convinced me that doesn't guarantee that, but it, it, it does up the probability that it's going to be a better conversation. I think that that one is, is true. And then, you know, beyond that, I mean, not every, not everybody is oriented to want to be in therapy. Some people have all kinds of feelings about it. Some people are not wanting to read books or, or any of these kind of things like that. But uh, I, I think at the, if you can start out 
hopefully earlier, not when things just are in a disaster place, and start talking about well, what, what are some of the things, can we, can we learn some things, can we talk about some of these things you know, that, that may prevent a lot. I know that we may not necessarily have a panacea, a cure for all all the the, the, the troubles out there, the problems out there. But uh, um, what do you think? Is there is there something, or you know, is there a, a few things that people, the couples, can do to maybe reconnect? Uh, I know it may sound like common sense, and I know uh, geographically we may do things in New York that. People may not do in California and vice versa. <laughs> But uh, what do you think? Is there, is there, a, is there something that you, you would recommend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think some of it is uh, building rituals into your relationship that are important, right? And, and I would say, and, and I don't know if this is just a, a California thing, or well, I think it's probably not, but I think that there's a a big value that people place on spontaneity, which is, you know, which I, I, I like spontaneity as well. I think it could be ma just magical uh, to have things just come about and you think, wow, well, that was a wonderful moment. How, you know, how, how could we possibly replicate that? But especially if you're living a busy life, if you have kids, if you're, if you have two careers, Uh, there's only so much time. And if you wait around for spontaneity to happen, the probability of that is low, right? And it may not be enough to sustain you. So I think for a couple to be thinking about what are the ways that we come together that we can set up, you know, that we can have, uh, you know, the, the classic thing would be like a date night or, a, or to have a time at the end of the day where you can sit and reflect on the day, even like it's, it's like 15 minutes. Can we talk about what happened today or at a meal, right? To break bread together and say, you know, uh, this is an important thing as a family. Can, uh, and I, and I, I would say as a, as a mental health professional, I deprived my family of being present for many meals because I was working evenings in a teen crisis program, right? Uh, but I, there was a cost to that. But I think to, uh, to, to sit and, and, uh, and have a meal together and in that meal, um, uh, You know, have a conversation about the day. Talk about the highs and lows of the day for each person. You know, something like that. You know, so I would say, de you know, develop rituals. You know, that, that, that could be very important. Things you can count on to come together. And, you know, very often we hear, you know, couples may like, I don't know, watch TV while they're eating, for example. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it's sometimes like, how do we... Like, even if you do that, and that's an important ritual for the two of you, when is another moment when that might be, yeah. right? Like, it yeah. might be a, like a more possible thing for you yeah. to actually talk to each other and kind of like check in. Hey, like, how was your day? Or, you know, what's going on for you today? Exactly. <laughs> Or like, you know, Argentina won yesterday. Argentina, like, how are yes. you feeling about that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, we also want to congratulate Argentina for, for the, <laughs> go for the win. Yeah, go Messi. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, we, we. I mean, it was a, it was a good game, though. I, uh, you know, my, my hat to to France for putting up a, a fight till the end. Um, um, Michael, one thing that um, you know, again, we want to make sure that uh, we're respectful of your time and. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do out there. And uh, uh, we have people that uh, are relocating either to California, some clients that are thinking about it. Uh, if they're struggling, everything, what can you do for them? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, please tell us uh, uh, how can people find you? Okay. Thank, well, thank you for that. Um, I, at this point, I am, uh, I'm on the part of my career where I, I am uh, – I'm slowing down. So I, I, so I spend a lot of my time nowadays trying to hang out with my grandkids. I, I take care of my, for you. My, my granddaughter one day a week and, and I try to hook up and play a little soccer with my grandson whenever I can. Um, but I do, I do maintain a couple's therapy practice. Um, and at, at, this, at this point though, uh, I am only taking on new couples for what's called marathon therapy. So this is a this is a variation of Gottman Method Couples Therapy. Uh, if you go to uh, the website that 
uh, my colleague Marcia and I share is SonomaCouplesWorkshops.com. You'll see a little bit about what we've done in the past. We used to offer uh, couples workshops. Um, I used to do more training of, of ther therapists and Gottman therapy that wanted to be certified in this method. Uh, now you'll see on there, you'll say couples therapy and it drop down. It'll say marathon therapy and it would tell people about that. This is a, an intensive form of couples therapy, which is three days long. We just would see a couple for three days and follow up sessions. And that's not for everyone, but for many, for many couples, they find they can work through things in that type of format that they wouldn't be able to get to if they just came in every week or every two weeks, something like, like that. So I'm, I'm mainly doing great. that and I'm mainly, I'm mainly providing consultation to therapists that are wanting to train in, in this method. So I'm doing that through the Gottman Institute. That's amazing. And you do, do you do that virtually and in person? I, I do. Yeah, I do. I, I prefer to see people in now as we're getting a little bit into the post pandemic stage, if people can come to the office for the marathon and then do follow up online, if they're coming from, you know, a distance, that would be the preferable way to do it. But, but I am set up technically uh, to do the marathon therapy on, you know, online as well. Yeah. I mean, this sounds uh, terrific. I mean, especially, um, I mean, it, when couples, uh, for all, for the audience out there, couples can really combine two things, uh, 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 you know, uh, a trip to get away together and, and reconnect with that. And, you know, three days sounds like, uh, you know, definitely it, it, it's, it's a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. They can come to the wine country Absolutely. here. Yeah, we'll show well, um, the I think, uh, <laughs> we think we're done. I think we went actually over, but, uh, it, it was a pleasure. And, uh, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, uh, Michael, and, uh, this has been, like also a learning experience for us uh you you i have to say you you really um provided yes. a lot of wisdom and i'm pretty sure that the audience uh, uh will feel that way um it's been a pleasure uh we'd love to see you again in the in, in the future maybe here in person if you if you travel to new york that'd be great Oh, I would, I, I would love it. My, my, my daughter used to uh, work in the fashion industry in, in New York, and we would go out to see her. So we've got to love New York City. So. Oh, nice, so, nice. Yeah. That's wonderful. I make, I make excellent pizza from scratch. I okay. make the dough myself. Okay. Yes, so yes. That's, uh, it, you know, that's uh, a great invitation for me. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough to consider taking another trip to New York. Yes, I assure you. That's if, if you don't have enough reasons. Uh, Michael has been great. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, you. Have a wonderful rest of the day and uh, a happy holiday season, a wonderful new year. Thank you. And to you, to you as well. Thank you so much. And just for our audience, we will be including um, the, the website uh, that Michael just talked about, and we will be uh, including just some links for some resources. Um, there's a video by John Gottman that I, uh, it's very valuable and, and it summarizes a lot of what we talked about today. And we'll include that book that you mentioned, um, the seven principles of making uh, marriage work. Very good. Excellent. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Bye-bye, Michael. Bye. 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 So just to wrap up, we just want to give some highlights from this conversation with Michael. This was so helpful. Um, one of them is that the basis of a strong relationship and thinking about good communication, um, he gave us some ideas. So one of them is love maps, so making some brain space for our partner, uh, expressing fondness and admiration and turning towards as just predictors of good communication in our relationship. Then he spoke about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, so things that predict that our relationship is not going to go very well. Uh, criticism is one of them, so focusing on uh, character flaws in our partner, being defensive, defensiveness, contempt and stonewalling, basically not turning towards, but turning the other way. Um, one of the predictors of good communication definitely is being present. So just the idea that we should check with our partner if we need their attention, is it a good time, right? Thinking about uh, phones and, you know, good moments when we want to share something. So if we really want to be present at the time we're trying to communicate something, just checking with our partner about that. Um, he mentioned uh, the idea of perpetual problems in relationships, just accepting that we're different 
and that there are always going to be some problems that are going to be perpetual in the sense that they will not, you know, change um, drastically, like one of us being messy, the other, the other one being more organized. Uh, but just uh, he spoke about coming up with little compromises that could be temporary. So we're not really looking for um, like big solutions to some of these problems, but just kind of like compromising and trying different ways in which we can do our best to accept some of these differences between us uh, in a couple. Um, the other important part was building rituals into our relationship as something that can help us connect with each other. So whatever that looks like, um, you know, he spoke about how valuable it is to be spontaneous, but sometimes we don't have the time, you know, we, we can't be so spontaneous all the time when we're busy and we know New Yorkers are pretty busy. <laughs> um, so it's hard. So planning things like a date night or just during meals, you know, maybe no phones during meals and it's a moment to catch up about the day, connect. If that's not a good moment, then finding moments for that to actually happen where we can, you know, talk about what happened during the day, what's going on with you, how, how is this affecting you, you know, something that's going on in the world or at work. Um, I thought that was great. And then, um, then understanding that we not always have the same level of motivation in terms of feeling ready to have these conversations, even to reach out for help. So just being aware that, you know, sometimes our partner may not quite be there, but just by us starting something, sometimes even starting individual therapy and then waiting to see if our partner may join at some point. Those are valuable highlights from our conversation with Michael today. We hope you enjoyed uh, our podcast today and we look forward to our next episode. And happy holidays and a happy new year to all of you. This has been another episode of the Rise to Change podcast. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit our website or find us on social media, which are linked in the description below, along with any resources we mentioned in this episode. Thank you for listening and remember to, to always be kind, kind to yourself. yourself.